Section 27 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean F. Sawyers. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 16, Part 1. How Christ Performed the Office of Redeemer in procuring our salvation, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. This chapter contains four leading heads. 1. A general consideration of the whole subject, including a discussion of a necessary question concerning the justice of God and his mercy in Christ, sections 1-4. through four. 2. How Christ fulfilled the office of Redeemer in each of its parts, section 5-17. through 17. His death, burial, descent to hell, resurrection, ascension to heaven, seat at the right hand of the Father, and return to judgment. 3. A great part of the creed being here expounded, a statement is given of the view which ought to be taken of the creed commonly ascribed to the apostles. Section 18. Conclusion. Setting forth the doctrine of Christ the Redeemer, and the use of the doctrine. Section 19. Sections. 1. Everything needful for us exists in Christ, how it is to be obtained. 2. Question as to the mode of reconciling the justice with the mercy of God, modes of expression used in Scripture to teach us how miserable our condition is without Christ. 3. Not used improperly, for God finds in us ground both of hatred and love. 4. This confirmed from passages of Scripture and from Augustine. 5. The second part of the chapter, treating of our redemption by Christ. First, generally, redemption extends to the whole course of our Savior's obedience, but is specially ascribed to his death. The voluntary subjection of Christ, his agony, his condemnation before Pilate. Two things observable in his condemnation. One that he was numbered among the transgressors. 2. That he was declared innocent by the judge. Use to be made of this. 6. Why Christ was crucified. This hidden doctrine typified in the law and completed by the apostles and prophets. In what sense Christ was made a curse for us. The cross of Christ connected with the shedding of his blood. 7. Of the death of Christ why he died, advantages from his death, of the burial of Christ, advantages. 8. Of the descent into hell. This article gradually introduced into the church must not be rejected nor confounded with the previous article respecting burial. 9. Absurd exposition concerning the limbus patrum. This fable refuted. 10 the article of the descent to hell more accurately expounded, a great ground of comfort. 11. Confirmation of this exposition from passages of Scripture and the works of ancient theologians, an objection refuted, advantages of the doctrine. 12. Another objection that Christ is insulted, and despair ascribed to him in its being said that he feared. Answer from the statements of the evangelists, that he did fear, was troubled in spirit, amazed, and tempted in all respects, as we are, 
yet without sin. Why Christ was pleased to become weak. His fear without sin. Refutation of another objection, with an answer to the question, Did Christ fear death, and why? When did Christ descend to hell, and how? What has been said refutes the heresy of Apollinaris and the Monothelites. 13. Of the resurrection of Christ. The many advantages from it. 1. Our righteousness in the sight of God renewed and restored. 2. His life the basis of our life and hope. Also, the efficacious cause of new life in us. 3. The pledge of our future resurrection. 14. Of the ascension of Christ. Why he ascended. Advantages derived from it. 15. Of Christ's seat at the Father's right hand what meant by it. 16. Many advantages from the ascension of Christ. 1. He gives access to the kingdom which Adam has shut up. 2. He intercedes for us with the Father. 3. His virtue being thence transfused into us. He works effectually in us for salvation. 17. Of the return of Christ to judgment. Its nature. The quick and dead who are to be judged passages apparently contradictory reconciled mode of judgment eighteen advantages of the doctrine of christ's return to judgment third part of the chapter explaining the view to be taken of the apostles creed summary of the apostles creed nineteen conclusion of the whole chapter showing that in christ the salvation of the elect in all its parts is comprehended one all that we have hitherto said of Christ leads to this one result, that condemned, dead, and lost in ourselves, we must in him seek righteousness, deliverance, life, and salvation, as we are taught by the celebrated words of Peter. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The name of Jesus was not given him at random, or fortuitously, or by the will of man, but was brought from heaven by an angel as the herald of the supreme decree, the reason also being added, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. In these words, attention should be paid to what we have elsewhere observed, that the office of Redeemer was assigned him in order that he might be our Savior. Still, however, redemption would be defective if it did not conduct us by an uninterrupted progression to the final goal of safety. Therefore, the moment we turn aside from him in the minutest degree, salvation, which resides entirely in him, gradually disappears, so that all who do not rest in him voluntarily deprive themselves of all grace. The observation of Bernard well deserves to be remembered. The name of Jesus is not only light, but food also, yea, oil, without which all the food of the soul is dry, salt, without which, as a condiment, whatever is set before us is insipid, in fine, honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, joy in the heart, and at the same time medicine. Every discourse where this name is not heard is absurd but here it is necessary diligently to consider in what way we obtain salvation from him, that we may not only be persuaded 
that he is the author of it, but having embraced whatever is sufficient as a sure foundation of our faith, may eschew all that might make us waver. For seeing no man can descend into himself, and seriously consider what he is, without feeling that God is angry and at enmity with him, and therefore anxiously longing for the means of regaining his favor, this cannot be without satisfaction. The certainty here required is of no ordinary description. Sinners, until freed from guilt, being always liable to the wrath and curse of God, who, as he is a just judge, cannot permit his law to be violated with impunity, but is armed for vengeance. 2. But before we proceed farther, we must see in passing how can it be said that God, who prevents us with his mercy, was our enemy until he was reconciled to us by Christ. For how could he have given us, in his only begotten Son, a singular pledge of his love, if he had not previously embraced us with free favor? As there thus arises some appearance of contradiction, I will explain the difficulty. The mode in which the Spirit usually speaks in Scripture is that God was the enemy of men until they were restored to favor by the death of Christ. Romans 5.10 That they were cursed until their iniquity was expiated by the sacrifice of Christ. Galatians 3.10 and 13 That they were separated from God until by means of Christ's body they are received into union. Colossians 1.21 and 22 such modes of expression are accommodated to our capacity that we may the better understand how miserable and calamitous our condition is without Christ. For were it not said in clear terms that divine wrath and vengeance and eternal death lay upon us, we should be less sensible of our wretchedness without the mercy of God and less disposed to value the blessing of deliverance. For example, let a person be told had God at the time you were a sinner hated you and cast you off as you deserved, horrible destruction must have been your doom. But spontaneously and of free indulgence, he retains you in his favor, not suffering you to be estranged from him, and in this way rescued you from danger. The person will indeed be affected and made sensible in some degree how much he owes to the mercy of God. But again, let him be told, as scripture teaches, that he was estranged from God by sin, an heir of wrath, exposed to the curse of eternal death, excluded from all hope of salvation, a complete alien from the blessing of God, the slave of Satan, captive under the yoke of sin, in fine, doomed to horrible destruction and already involved in it, that then Christ interposed, took the punishment upon himself, and bore what by the just judgment of God was impending over sinners, with his own blood expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God, by this expiation satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father, by this intercession appeased his anger, on this basis founded peace between God and men, and by this tie secured the divine benevolence toward them. Will not these considerations move him the more deeply, the more strikingly they represent the greatness of the calamity from which he was delivered? In short, since our mind cannot lay hold of life through the mercy of God with sufficient eagerness, or receive it with becoming gratitude, 
unless previously impressed with fear of the divine anger and dismayed at the thought of eternal death we are so instructed by divine truth as to perceive that without christ god is in a manner hostile to us and has his arm raised for our destruction thus taught we look to christ alone for divine favor and paternal love three though this is said in accommodation to the weakness of our capacity it is not said falsely for god who is perfect righteousness cannot love the iniquity which he sees in all all of us therefore have that within which deserves the hatred of god hence in respect first of our corrupt nature and secondly of the depraved conduct following upon it we are all offensive to god guilty in his sight and by nature the children of hell but as the lord wills not to destroy in us that which is his own he still finds something in us which in kindness he can love for though it is by our own fault that we are sinners we are still his creatures though we have brought death upon ourselves he had created us for life thus mere gratuitous love prompts him to receive us into favor but if there is a perpetual and irreconcilable repugnance between righteousness and iniquity so long as we remain sinners we cannot be completely received therefore in order that all ground of offense may be removed and he may completely reconcile us to himself he by means of the expiation set forth in the death of christ abolishes all the evil that is in us so that we formerly impure and unclean now appear in his sight just and holy accordingly god the father by his love prevents and anticipates our reconciliation in christ nay it is because he first loves us that he afterwards reconciles us to himself but because the iniquity which deserves the indignation of god remains in us until the death of christ comes to our aid and that iniquity is in his sight accursed and condemned we are not admitted to full and sure communion with god unless in so far as christ unites us and therefore if we would indulge the hope of having god placable and propitious to us we must fix our eyes and minds on christ alone as it is to him alone it is owing that our sins which necessarily provoke the wrath of god are not imputed to us for for this reason paul says that god has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world ephesians 1 3 and 4 these things are clear and conformable to scripture and admirably reconcile the passages in which it is said that god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son john three sixteen, and yet that it was when we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son romans five ten but to give additional assurance to those who require the authority of the ancient church i will quote a passage of augustine to the same effect incomprehensible and immutable is the love of god for it was not after we were reconciled to him by the blood of his son that he began to love us but he loved us before the foundation of the world that with his only begotten son we too might be sons of god before we were anything at all 
our being reconciled by the death of christ must not be understood as if the son reconciled us in order that the father then hating might begin to love us but that we were reconciled to him already loving though at enmity with us because of sin to the truth of both propositions we have the attestation of the apostle god commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us romans 5 8 therefore he had this love towards us even when exercising enmity towards him we were the workers of iniquity accordingly in a manner wondrous and divine he loved even when he hated us for he hated us when we were such as he had not made us and yet because our iniquity had not destroyed his work in every respect he knew in regard to each one of us both to hate what we had made and love what he had made such are the words of augustine five when it is asked then how christ by abolishing sin removed the enmity between god and us and purchased a righteousness which made him favorable and kind to us it may be answered generally that he accomplished this by the whole course of his obedience this is proved by the testimony of paul as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous romans five nineteen and indeed he elsewhere extends the ground of pardon which exempts from the curse of the law to the whole life of christ when the fullness of time was come god sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law galatians four four and five thus even at his baptism he declared that a part of righteousness was fulfilled by his yielding obedience to the command of the father in short from the moment when he assumed the form of a servant he began in order to redeem us to pay the price of deliverance scripture however the more certainly to define the mode of salvation ascribes it peculiarly and specially to the death of christ he himself declares that he gave his life a ransom for many matthew twenty twenty eight paul teaches that he died for our sins romans four twenty five john the baptist exclaimed behold the lamb of god which takes away the sin of the world john one twenty nine paul in another passage declares that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood romans three twenty five again being justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him romans five nine again he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of god in him second corinthians five twenty one i will not search out all the passages for the list would be endless and many are afterwards to be quoted in their order in the confession of faith called the apostles creed the transition is admirably made from the birth of christ to his death and resurrection in which the completion of a perfect salvation consists still there is no exclusion of the other part of obedience which he performed in life thus paul comprehends from the beginning even to the end his having assumed the form of a servant humbled himself and become obedient to death even the death of the cross philippians two seven and indeed 
the first step in obedience was his voluntarily subjection for the sacrifice would have been unavailing to justification if not offered spontaneously hence our lord after testifying i lay down my life for the sheep distinctly adds no man takes it from me john ten fifteen eighteen in the same sense isaiah says like a sheep before her shearers is dumb so he opened not his mouth isaiah fifty three seven the gospel history relates that he came forth to meet the soldiers and in presence of pilate instead of defending himself stood to receive judgment this indeed he did not without a struggle for he had assumed our infirmities also and in this way it behooved him to prove that he was yielding obedience to his father it was no ordinary example of incomparable love towards us to struggle with dire terrors and amid fearful tortures to cast away all care of himself that he might provide for us we must bear in mind that christ could not duly propitiate god without renouncing his own feelings and subjecting himself entirely to his father's will to this effect the apostle appositely quotes a passage from the psalms lo i come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will o god hebrews ten five psalm forty seven and eight thus as trembling consciences find no rest without sacrifice and ablution by which sins are expiated we are properly directed thither the source of our life being placed in the death of christ moreover as the curse consequent upon guilt remained for the final judgment of god one principal point in the narrative is his condemnation before pontius pilate the governor of judea to teach us that the punishment to which we were liable was inflicted on that just one we could not escape the fearful judgment of god and christ that he might rescue us from it submitted to be condemned by a mortal nay by a wicked and profane man for the name of governor is mentioned not only to support the credibility of the narrative but to remind us of what isaiah says that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and that with his stripes we are healed isaiah fifty three five for in order to remove our condemnation it was not sufficient to endure any kind of death to satisfy our ransom it was necessary to select a mode of death in which he might deliver us both by giving himself up to condemnations and undertaking our expiation had he been cut off by assassins or slain in a seditious tumult there could have been no kind of satisfaction in such a death but when he is placed as a criminal at the bar where witnesses are brought to give evidence against him and the mouth of the judge condemns him to die we see him sustaining the character of an offender and evildoer here we must attend to two points which had both been foretold by the prophets and tend admirably to comfort and confirm our faith when we read that christ was led away from the judgment seat to execution and was crucified between thieves we have a fulfillment of the prophecy which is quoted by the evangelist he was numbered with the transgressors isaiah fifty three twelve mark fifteen twenty eight why was it so that he might bear the character of a sinner 
not of a just or innocent person, inasmuch as he met death on account not of innocence, but of sin. On the other hand, when we read that he was acquitted by the same lips that condemned him, for Pilate was forced once and again to bear public testimony to his innocence, let us call to mind what is said by another prophet, I restored that which I took not away. Psalm 69.4 Thus we perceive Christ representing the character of a sinner and a criminal, while at the same time his innocence shines forth and it becomes manifest that he suffers for another's and not for his own crime. He therefore suffered under Pontius Pilate, being thus, by the formal sentence of the judge, ranked among criminals. And yet he is declared innocent by the same judge, when he affirms that he finds no cause of death in him. Our acquittal is in this, that the guilt which made us liable to punishment was transferred to the head of the Son of God, Isaiah 53:12. We must specially remember this substitution in order that we may not be all our lives in trepidation and anxiety, as if the just vengeance which the Son of God transferred to himself were still impending over us. 6. The very form of the death embodies a striking truth. The cross was cursed not only in the opinion of men, but by the enactment of the divine law. Hence Christ, while suspended on it, subjects himself to the curse, and thus it behooved to be done, in order that the whole curse, which on account of our iniquities awaited us, or rather lay upon us, might be taken from us by being transferred to him. This was also shadowed in the law, since Ashmot, the word by which sin itself is properly designated, was applied to the sacrifices and expiations offered for sin. By this application of the term, the spirit intended to intimate that they were a kind of katharmaton, purifications, bearing by substitutions the curse due to sin. But that which was represented figuratively in the Mosaic sacrifices is exhibited in Christ the archetype. Wherefore, in order to accomplish a full expiation, he made his soul to asham, i.e., a propitiatory victim for sin, as the prophet says, Isaiah 53, 5 and 10, on which the guilt and penalty being in a manner laid ceases to be imputed to us. The apostle declares this more plainly when he says that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For the Son of God, though spotlessly pure, took upon him the disgrace and ignominy of our iniquities, and in return clothed us with his purity. To the same thing he seems to refer when he says that he condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3 The Father having destroyed the power of sin when it was transferred to the flesh of Christ. This term, therefore, indicates that Christ, in his death, was offered to the Father as a propitiatory victim, that expiation being made by his sacrifice, we might cease to tremble at the divine wrath. It is now clear what the prophet means when he says that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. Namely, that as he was to wash away the pollution of sins, 
they were transferred to him by imputation. Of this, the cross to which he was nailed was a symbol, as the apostle declares, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 13, 14. In the same way, Peter says that he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2, 24. Inasmuch as from the very symbol of the curse, we perceive more clearly that the burden with which we were oppressed was laid upon him. Nor are we to understand that by the curse which he endured, he was himself overwhelmed, but rather that by enduring it, he repressed, broke, annihilated all its force. Accordingly, faith apprehends acquittal in the condemnation of Christ and blessing in his curse. Hence, it is not without cause that Paul magnificently celebrates the triumph which Christ obtained upon the cross, as if the cross, the symbol of ignominy, had been converted into a triumphal chariot. For he says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross that having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Nor is this to be wondered at, for as another apostle declares, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. Hebrews nine fourteen, And hence that transformation of the cross, which were otherwise against its nature, but that these things may take deep root and have their seat in our inmost hearts, we must never lose sight of sacrifice and ablution. For were not Christ a victim, we could have no sure conviction of his being. Apolotrosen, kai antilutron, kai ilasterion, our substitute, ransom, and propitiation and hence mention is always made of blood whenever scripture explains the mode of redemption although the shedding of christ's blood was available not only for propitiation but also acted as a labor to purge our defilements seven the creed next mentions that he was dead and buried here again it is necessary to consider how he substituted himself in order to pay the price of our redemption. Death held us under its yoke, but he in our place delivered himself into its power, that he might exempt us from it. This the apostle means when he says that he tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9. By dying, he prevented us from dying, or, which is the same thing, he by his death purchased life for us. But in this he differed from us, that in permitting himself to be overcome of death, it was not so as to be engulfed in its abyss, but rather to annihilate it, as it must otherwise have annihilated us. He did not allow himself to be so subdued by it as to be crushed by its power. He rather laid it prostrate when it was impending over us, and exulting over us as already overcome. In fine, his object was that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. This is the first fruit which his death produced to us, 
another is that by fellowship with him he mortifies our earthly members that they may not afterwards exert themselves in action and kill the old man that he may not hereafter be in vigor and bring forth fruit an effect of his burials moreover is that we as his fellows are buried to sin for when the apostle says that we are engrafted into the likeness of christ's death and that we are buried with him unto sin that by his cross the world is crucified unto us and we unto the world and that we are dead with him he not only exhorts us to manifest an example of his death but declares that there is an efficacy in it which should appear in all christians if they would not render his death unfruitful and useless accordingly in the death and burial of christ a twofold blessing is set before us viz deliverance from death to which we were enslaved and the mortification of our flesh romans six five galatians two nineteen six fourteen colossians three three eight here we must not omit the descent to hell which was of no little importance to the accomplishment of redemption for although it is apparent from the writings of the ancient fathers that the clause which now stands in the creed was not formally so much used in the churches still in giving a summary of doctrine a place must be assigned to it as containing a matter of great importance which ought not by any means to be disregarded indeed some of the ancient fathers do not omit it and hence we may conjecture that having been inserted in the creed after a considerable lapse of time it came into use in the church not immediately but by degrees this much is uncontroverted that it was in accordance with the general sentiment of all believers since there is none of the fathers who does not mention christ's descent into hell though they have various modes of explaining it but it is of little consequence by whom and at what time it was introduced the chief thing to be attended to in the creed is that it furnishes us with a full and every way complete summary of faith containing nothing but what has been derived from the infallible word of god but should any still scruple to give it admission into the creed it will shortly be made plain that the place which it holds in a summary of our redemption is so important that the omission of it greatly detracts from the benefit of christ's death there are some again who think that the article contains nothing new but is merely a repetition in different words of what was previously said respecting burial the word hell infernos being often used in scripture for sepulchre i admit the truth of what they allege with regard to the not infrequent use of the term infernos for sepulchre but i cannot adopt their opinion for two obvious reasons first what folly would it have been after explaining a matter attended with no difficulty in clear and unambiguous terms afterwards to involve rather than illustrate it by clothing it in obscure phraseology when two expressions having the same meaning are placed together the latter ought to be explanatory of the former but what kind of explanation would it be to say the expression christ was buried means that he descended into hell my second reason is the improbability that a superfluous tautology of this description should have crept into this compendium in which the principal articles of faith are set down summarily in the fewest possible number of words i have no doubt that all who weigh the matter with some degree of care will here agree with me end of section twenty seven recording by 
Sean F. Sawyers, Eureka, Missouri.